0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As a major eclipse bears down in the United States, we find out about all the science that we don't when the sun is dark. The United States will have its first total eclipse in 40 years, and a lot of scientists are going to be eagerly anticipating this date, so they can undertake studies on the corona, on the moon, and on the magnetosphere, all at the same time. We find out what these scientists will be up to, and how they make the most of this eclipse. On August 21 in 2017, the United States, from coast to coast, in a big diagonal slice, will be all able to see a total solar eclipse. And it's in fact the first total solar eclipse visible across the continental United States in around 38 years. So it's pretty exciting for those of us living in North America. For those of us outside, we can still enjoy the wonders of the eclipse through the images and through the fantastic science that is going to be undertaken during the eclipse. The first thing to go through though is What is an eclipse and why are all these different types of eclipses happening and what they mean? Well, an eclipse is basically the moon moving in front of the sun, obscuring it and casting a shadow. And in a total eclipse, well, all of the sun is obscured by the moon. It goes completely dark. In a partial eclipse, well, what can happen is that it will only cover a sort of a crescent type of it. So it leaves a slim slither of the sun remaining. And in an annular eclipse, well, the moon is actually a little bit closer and it doesn't fully obscure the sun. So you're left with a very large ring of the sun still shining through. Those are the different types of eclipses. And the most rare and the most beautiful, of course, is the total eclipse, which is about to happen for North America in August 21st. And we've been tracking eclipses for thousands upon thousands of years. There's a lot of theories that pretend that the development of mathematics, as well as complicated science, particularly around astronomy, all was developed by all cultures across the world to predict eclipses and other stellar events. And we've been doing it from the Babylonians, the Assyrians, from thousands of years BCE, all the way through to now. And in 1919, for example, we used the solar eclipse to validate the calculations purported by Einstein's theory of general relativity and solar eclipses remain a valuable tool for helping study the sun and solar flares as well. Now if earth and the moon had a a perfect orbit uh, perfectly aligned and centralized then we'd have an eclipse every month but the fact is that since the moon orbits the earth in a kind of tilted ring we get eclipses on a rare instance they happen in a particular location very rarely. But overall, across the entire world, they're happening quite frequently. It's just that that spot where the eclipse is occurring just moves and wanders across the world because it's basically drawing this shadowy path, the Umbra, across the world in a weird, crazy zigzag pattern. And you can look at the maps of where we've actually recorded eclipses, and it's pretty much everywhere. Um, but it takes time for it to come back to the same place. And also, you have to get everything aligned nicely to get a real total eclipse. So a total eclipse is rare, exciting, and provides a great opportunity to conduct a lot of exciting science. For those fortunate enough to be in the path of the total eclipse in the United States on the 21st of August, they'll get about two minutes of time to observe the sun, and that will be pretty spectacular and amazing during that two minutes. But for conducting detailed scientific analysis, two minutes is nowhere near enough time. So what do you do? Well, if you're NASA, you take two jets, two WB-57F jets out of your garage, And you strap some super-stabilised telescopes to these jets, and you chase the eclipse all the way across the planet. And that, by doing that, you get about seven minutes of eclipse time, which is almost useful amount of time for doing science. And that's exactly what NASA and a team of researchers from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, led by Amir Caspi, will be doing on August 21. They'll be taking pictures using these telescopes mounted on jets soaring across the United States to get detailed images and data on the sun's outer atmosphere, the corona. And they'll also, before and after, be taking some observations of Mercury, because, well, while you're up there, you may as well have a look at a few other things. So what are they actually going to study? Well, the One of the fascinating parts about the sun is we don't quite understand a really interesting aspect of the corona. Now, the corona is the upper, outer atmosphere of the sun, and we can see that quite often. That's just the nice flary bits. And if you think of a child's drawing of the sun, those ziggly, spiky bits that you see around it. But the problem is that that upper corona, upper atmosphere, is really, really hot. Thousands upon thousands of degrees. And that makes sense um, because that's, you know, the sun. It's a giant ball of... Plasma that's superheated. But when you go down the layers of the sun, towards the surface of the sun, the lower atmosphere, so to speak, the photosphere is the technical name for it, which is what we call the visible surface of the sun. It's actually cooler. It's not millions of degrees like the upper atmosphere, like the corona, but rather only thousands of degrees. And look, what's a few thousands of tens of thousands of degrees between friends? But it doesn't make any sense to scientists because how can the upper parts be so much, so much hotter than like literally the surface? So this is a huge area of interest for scientists because they're trying to figure out why this inversion in temperatures happened between the layers. Now, there's a couple of theories for what could be going on here. The first is that something like magnetic waves, which scientists refer to as alphan waves, are conveying the energy from the sun all the way up into the upper outer atmosphere, the corona, where it is then dissipated as heat. So basically these magnetic waves propagate out of the sun and get to the outer atmosphere, the corona, and become heat. So from magnetic energy to heat energy. And then at the surface, they're not sort of dissipated out, so they're still just magnetic energy. So the temperature is low, but the total level of energy is quite high still. So that's one theory. The alternative is that micro-explosions, which scientists refer to as nano-flares, which are too small and too too frequent to detect individually, but with collectively, would be able to eject enough heat from the surface into the corona. The problem is that during an eclipse of two minutes, that's not enough time to really gather enough data to make a conclusion either way. Hence, the reason why we need to strap these super-powerful telescopic cameras on jets and fly them across the sky chasing the eclipse. Problem is at the moment is that simply because of how difficult it is to image the sun, we haven't actually got any proof that these nanoflares exist and that they're happening. Like theoretically we think they should, but we haven't been able to capture any. So we need really high speed and really high resolution cameras. that's what we're putting on the WB-57F jets to fly across chasing this eclipse. And these high-definition pictures are basically captured at 30 times per second, so quite fast. And what will be done is these pictures will be studied for wave motion in the corona to see if there's basically like a propagation outlet, like ripples occurring from the lower levels all the way up to the corona, which might give some evidence either way. So there is some evidence to suggest nanoflare heating is occurring, but we're not sure where it's happening. So if you can look at these ripples out from the surface of the sun all the way up to the corona, if they occur higher in the corona, then you might see some waves moving downwards. Whereas if they are occurring lower down, then you would see the, the waves occurring higher up. So it's kind of an interesting way to look for the ripples to see where the actual explosion or flare is taking place. So many people are trying to make the most of this eclipse and the researchers from NASA, together with the Southwestern Research Institute, Boulder, Colorado are trying to really piece together the mysteries of the sun and its temperature profile by chasing the eclipse, and hopefully, they can shed some light on this mysterious phenomenon. A solar eclipse isn't the only way to cast the Earth in a shadow. In fact, on August 3, 1998, in Boulder, Colorado, there was such a thick and heavy cloud that it cast an incredibly intense and dark cloud shadow all over Boulder for about 30 minutes. Even well-calibrated radiometers showed there was incredibly low levels of light reaching the ground. In fact, it's such an interesting phenomenon that scientists have been studying and investigating all the data from this event for years and years and years. In fact, it's a really useful way to calibrate the amount of solar radiation hitting the earth in all kinds of computer simulations used in climate science and all other kinds of models for everything from solar panels to how the earth storm systems work. So understanding how much energy from the sun is actually hitting the earth's surface and how that varies over time, is incredibly important. It really helps us piece together this puzzle of our entire energy and climate system here on Earth. Because the sun is pretty much, aside from the Earth itself, one of the major contributors of energy to our planet. It comes here via solar radiation in various different forms, and by measuring and understanding how that changes over time and how that interacts with our atmosphere and all the other things in our solar system and the system of Earth itself can help us build better models. And these models can be used to do everything from plan the best places to put solar farms and solar panels through to understanding the overall function of our climate. Now, a team of researchers from Morgan State University in Baltimore, led by Guyong Wen, which is a NASA scientist working with Baltimore State University, are going to use the solar eclipse Across north america on august 21 as a great way to calibrate test and build a specific data set to train their model and they're going to use this model they call a 3d radiative transfer model that can help make huge predictions about our atmosphere about atmospheric science but also overall client science so like the giant cloud we talked about earlier this total solar eclipse is going to sweep across a broad part of the United States. And that's incredibly useful because now we'll get calibration points, so to speak, for all kinds of areas across the United States, rather than one little location in Boulder in Colorado. And because we now have a lot of satellites, such as the Deep Space Climate Observatory, DCOVR, which was launched in February 2015, along with NASA's two MODIS satellite instruments aboard their NASA's Terra and Aqua satellites, both from 1999 and 2002, and a few other different missions, including Solstice, SCORE, and Ceres, we'll be able to get a lot of space-based measurements of those same points of data. So we can get ground-based measurements of energy and radiation received in the areas of the eclipse but we can also track from space through a number of different satellite observatories how this is impacting the measurements as well. What that gives us top to bottom is a beautiful 3D set of data that we can use to build and analyse the impact of solar radiation on our climate and this is incredibly important because without this it's very difficult to make detailed long-term predictions and models on how our climate will behave as it changes. And every extra point of data makes those models clearer and more likely to be correct. So this is just another way that we can use the eclipse to not only learn about the sun, but also to learn about the atmosphere of our own planet and how that may change over time and better build models that help us predict and deal with the uncertainties in our own climate. eclipse occurs and sweeps its path across the earth which basically happens once every 18 months or so somewhere on the earth a large shadow sweeps across the planet's surface and the inner darkest part of the shadow we call the umbra and that is basically the shadow cast by the moon as it blocks out the sun's light on earth and the speed at which that shadow moves also varies across the position on Earth that it's traveling across, mostly because of the way the alignments work out. It might be traveling at 3,000 miles an hour at the start in Oregon and the northwestern United States, all the way down to the other coast in South Carolina. It might be traveling at a slower speed, simply because of the way the orbit of the moon is in a weird eccentric shape around the Earth. And we build these maps of eclipses, we call eclipse maps, and we trace it out as a kind of just like a dark circle racing across the landscape or maybe an oval but nasa's researchers led by visualizer ernie wright goddard used a new set of data from a 3d mapping of the moon's surface done by nasa's lunar Reconnaissance orbiter the elro to basically combine that with elevation information from earth and build an actual detailed shape of what that shadow will look like and it's not a circle it's not it's not even really an oval it's much more complicated than that. It's more of like a jagged or irregular polygon with slightly curved edges on some sides. And that's mostly due to the geometry of the Earth as well as the actual canyons and craters and strange shapes of the Moon as well. It's not just a perfect sphere mapping onto a perfect sphere. The Earth isn't a perfect sphere and neither is the Moon. And when you put those things together, the shadow path that you end up with is actually a lot more interesting. But this is not just useful for making a better representation of where the shadow of the eclipse will be. It also will help the prediction of what scientists or people in the astronomer field called Bailey's beads. They're like a diamond ring type, a brilliant flash of light that occurs on the edge of the darkened disk just before the perfect total point of the eclipse. And then these little flashes that appear just as it starts to leave the eclipse. And The scientists have now believed that that's caused by sunlight peeking through the valleys along the uneven edges of the moon. So as the sun sort of starts to get glimpses through these jagged canyons and mountains on the moon's surface, what we see here on Earth are these little flashes of light or diamond ring type effects, these sparkling, and that's actually really fascinating. So the eclipse is going to be beautiful in many ways. But to understand that, we also need to have detailed maps of the moon because it plays an integral role in this beautiful three-partner dance that we call the eclipse. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. From chasing the eclipse in jets to studying the canyons and mountain ranges on the moon and how they shape the eclipse's shadow, a lot of science is planning to be done when the eclipse happens in North America and we found out a lot about it.